Welcome back to episode 11, take two. Um, we are here with Kyle, myself, Logan, and Riley. He's on the dials. Uh, special guest, uh, Sam Toomberg from Purpose Filled Habitat Solutions. Um, Sam, we're going to jump right into it. You want to just tell us who you are, kind of where you're from, what you do, um, why you do it, and so forth. Yeah, so it's actually purpose-filled habitat management, but I appreciate appreciate the association with Jeff Sturgis there, so <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, my name is Sam Tumberg. Um, I grew up on a farm in Ottertail County, Minnesota. Um, just absolutely loved hunting from a young age. Uh, like I said in the first go-around, I still can remember sitting at the door waiting for Dad to come in when uh when it was rifle season because i couldn't wait to hear what he got so of course when it was my turn to to take a gun out in the woods i was pretty stoked and just fell in love with hunting right away and when i was age 15 i picked up a bow and kind of never looked back and just absolutely love being in god's creation uh with a with a bow in my hand so um bull hunted hard through my teenage years and in my 20s and like i i said the first time it's just kind of the natural evolution of a hunter where the hunting was always fantastic but i i knew there could be there's so much more to this experience and i started getting into the the habitat management stuff in my 20s and when we moved back to otter tail county to my hometown when i was 30 because i had lived in the cities before that uh, but when we moved back when I was 30, that's when I really dove headlong into the habitat management piece because just looking at our family farm, it's a 270-acre farm, which, I mean, sounds great, but it's actually, it's it's mostly open in a bunch of small woodlots. So I didn't feel like I had a ton to work with, but I always knew it could be better, and I knew there was a lot of things I could do to enhance the farm. So when I moved back at 30, I, I jumped into the habitat management thing and it's just been crazy to see just how much it's changed from you know when I first started dabbling with this stuff to now I'm 38 years old so really we're you know eight years into the process and it's been just awesome to see the the quality of deer that we're starting to see on the farm now um, the quality of deer we're harvesting now on the farm um, the amount of good encounters we're having um, and just the just the holding capacity of the farm has has increased quite a bit so um and the the great thing about habitat management is it's you know when we're we're bow hunting you know we spend a lot of the off season just kind of scouting and prepping and prepping stands and things like that but once you start doing the habitat management stuff like you literally are hunting all year long because you're planning your shots through the habitat manipulations that you're doing on your farm. I mean, I'm setting up stands and I'm doing improvements in a way that's gonna, you know, present myself with that 20, 30, 40 yard bow shot that we're looking for. So, um, yeah, it's just been, it's been awesome. And then uh, probably four or five years ago, you know, I, I kind of expanded from the farm. I started going out to properties actually for free right away just to try to build my experience with the, the habitat management stuff. And then a few years ago, um, and actually got busy enough where I started taking a fee, and now I do um, do consults for guys where we walk the property, and I'll, I'll write up a plan and map it out as far as what they can do to improve the habitat and the hunting on their farm. 
and then I'll also do some of the hands-on stuff. I'll do a lot of chainsaw work. I'll do some invasive invasive species control. Um, I might do some a little bit of poor man food plot planning, things like that. Um, but it's definitely become a, a very busy second job for me because my, my first job, I'm a school social worker by trade, and this started as a side hustle, but now it's become um, a busy second job, which is good because I enjoy both my jobs. It's kind of fun to to go from the school social work stuff into the habitat stuff in, on the weekends and in the summer. So I, I feel like I kind of get the best of both worlds with that. So. No, I think uh, uh, after our consult meeting up north, I, mean, I think all three of us here have kind of, it opened up a new page for our hunting. Oh, like absolutely. as soon as, as soon as we left the driveway, it was like instant talking. I, I know Riley and Kyle basically talked about it almost all the way home i called a couple times and you know just talked with them on the way home we're in separate vehicles and i mean you could just tell how excited we are to go and take all this new information that we learned bring it somewhere else to like our home farms and try um for sure it makes you want to like learn more too like yeah it is it is super it's really exciting like i said the first time i'm really excited for you guys because I feel like, you know, if you guys are, I think you said you're like 23 years old or whatever you are, you know, you're in your early 20s, like I feel like you're seven to eight years ahead of where I was at at your age Um, because the fact you're already even thinking about this stuff now just means that I know as you grow and mature as a hunter, you're going to, you know, do this a lot more and you're going to learn a lot more and I just think I'm, I can't wait to hear kind of what happens, not only on the property we walk, but like you said, those other pieces that you guys hunt and are able to do work on. I think it's just going to be an awesome journey for you. So, Sam, can you tell us, like, what goes through your mind, like, when you show up to a property, like, for example, Logan's property, like, what are you looking for first, and, like, what's catching your eye, what, 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 like, yeah, what are you looking for? Um, well, there's a few things that, that stand out. One is um, the, the topography, because we know that uh, you know, when I'm, one of the first things I'm looking at is, can we set up bedding on the property? And deer bed based on topography. So I'm looking for those, those high points, those ridge, ridges, those benches on a ridge. Um, kind of the military crest at the end of a point, the transitions between a swamp, um, islands in a swamp, all those types of kind of uh, topography or habitat features are the things I'm looking for because I know those are the areas we're going to be able to set up bedding if the uh, timber allows. And then I'm also looking at what type of timber do you have. You know, is it is it marketable timber? Is it going to be the type of stuff we could potentially talk about logging? Has there been a cut done? At one point, how long ago did that happen? Do we need to start considering resetting that cut with the uh, the chainsaw? Do you have hingeable trees where we can do some scattered hinge cuts and our bedding cuts? Um, do you have aspen pockets? Because I've talked endless times on my YouTube channel just about how how much I love aspen regeneration. So I'll look for, for that type of stuff. Um, I like to look at where, you know, where you have the food laid out. Is it, you know, is, is it conducive to just being able to get into the food and be able to hunt it? Do you have to blow through your whole property to get to the food? You know, do we have to move the food to a different spot? Um, I'm looking for invasive species. That's a big one. It, it just breaks my heart when I go to properties and, 
we we start walking and I can see it's just dense green from about 15 feet down in a closed canopy woods and I, I almost always know that that's a situation where buckthorn is taking over and there's there's going to be a lot of work ahead because with buckthorn it takes you know, three to five years to to fully get it under control and that's if you go all in after it and attack it every single year um so yeah those are some of the initial things that jump jump out to me I, i'm access i'm always looking at you know how can you access the property um i like to see how the property hunts on a northwest wind because that's the you know the predominant wind that we're hunting during the rut so um, i like to see where your wind's blowing um yeah that's that's kind of the main stuff so I know like when we were doing the visit with you, you were talking on uh, like the different types of trees when it comes to hinge cutting. Like, can you talk about like that on what you like prefer to hinge cut and what hinge cuts better than others and what hinge cuts worse? Yeah. Um, so in basically in our area of Minnesota, the main trees I'm looking at for hinge cutting would be um, my number one tree would probably be elm. I don't see a lot of them just because the uh with dutch elms disease we've we've lost quite a few um and number two would probably be box elder box elder hinge really well they're always kind of leaning one direction or another so it's easy to, pre- to predict where they're going to drop um and they prolifically sprout up the stump and they're great deer brows and they're, they're just a, a just a soft malleable wood so they, they hinge really well um three would probably be it's kind of a tie between ash and basswood like on your property we were dealing with a lot of ash ash can be a little bit tricky um as they get bigger they tend to to split a little bit um you know they can barber chair so you really got to be sticking with those more the medium sized ash trees um basswood are, are a good one they're maybe the best browse tree that i've seen especially in the winter if you knock down a basswood they have those big lump buds on them and the deer just pepper them i mean they will eat them you know six to 12 inches down the stem it's just a really soft wood that they they like to chew on um so those those four are kind of the main ones i'll I'll, i will hinge some hard maple but they got to be pretty small they're they're uh they don't always hinge the best I tend to shy away from hinging oak trees. The only situation where I'd maybe be hinging an oak is if I was releasing the oak to free up another oak tree. But there you have to be really careful. If you're cutting oaks, you don't want to cut them between April 15th and July 15th because of the possibility of oak wilt. Um, trees that I don't hinge, uh, I should also add, I do hinge ironwood sometimes. I, I mentioned it on my channel a lot that they just don't stay alive that well but they make a nice hinge and they kind of prop up the cover and there's, they take forever to break down. So they actually add a little structure to the bedding area. So I will, will hinge a handful of those. Um, I tend to flush cut most of those. Uh, one tree that I never hinge is Aspen. When we cut Aspen, it just, like I said, it, you literally get thousands of shoots per acre and you want to clear cut those when you're cutting them in an area. But if I'm in a bedding area and I see a pocket of like five aspen, I'm absolutely cutting those five aspen because when I do that, I know that root system's in that whole bedding area and it's going to shoot up thousands of aspen shoots in that bedding area just off those five trees I cut. So I really hone in on aspen, but I flush cut those. Um, I'm trying to think. There's not really a whole lot of... Oh, birch. Birch don't hinge. Um, so you'd want to 
flush cut those if you're cutting those down and any kind of conifer you never hinge cut a conifer and obviously like invasives like buckthorn you just want to cut and treat those you just named off 20 plus trees and i'm gonna have to go buy a book to <laughs> learn up on them um one of the questions i had is like let's say someone isn't i don't really want to say fortunate but can't um can't have like someone like you out a land specialist right Mm -hmm. how can they identify an improvement or like what's the first good step into you know making a property let's just call it one step better i mean is it food plots are you would you suggest food plots or is it first hinge cuts what is it yeah i mean food is uh is a huge piece i think everybody most people are aware of food plots and we always want to add food on properties um so that's uh that's definitely a big one but i think the first thing you need to do is just step back and educate yourself um you know get to know your plants we talked when we were walking there's an app called picture this um that's a really good tree ident- and plant identification app so I would advise anybody download that because you don't want to be out there cutting stuff when you don't know what you're cutting um, or killing things and you don't know what you're killing. So get to know the plants on your property and, um, and then just spend time educating yourself. Before, I'd say when I really got into this stuff, I took the first year and I didn't even touch my chainsaw. I literally went and consumed every bit of information I could find on YouTube, I was reading, um, you know, like peer-reviewed educational studies and things like that regarding habitat management. Um, I literally, if it if it had to do with habitat manipulation and making a property better and restoring it to its native state, I was reading it. And there's a million good channels out there. I mean, obviously, you could check out mine. Like you said, it's purpose-filled habitat management, but there's a lot of other good YouTube channels. Um, Dr. Jim Brocker, if you're into the hinge cutting stuff, it's Extreme Deer Habitat. Great, great YouTube channel, and he goes over a lot of the safety stuff, which is huge. I mean, if you're going to be running the saw, you need to know how to do it safely. Um, so he goes into a lot of that. Um, Jake Elinger, he's another. Jim Brocker's out of Michigan. Jake Elinger's out of Michigan. I think his is Habitat Solutions 360. Um, another really good YouTube channel, especially for small properties, because he's doing it on 40 acres in Michigan, and he's killing um, nice deer consistently out there on the 40 acres. Anything you can find from Jim Ward, um, he's kind of the goat of, of hinge cutting and you know, running a chainsaw. Um, he's been doing it forever. He's the, He does it for a living, and he's doing it 365, so he's a great one to follow. And probably the best overall habitat mind um, is Dr. Craig Carper out of the University of Tennessee. I don't think anybody knows more about deer habitat on the planet than that guy, but he's lived it for his entire life. He's doing the research. He's doing the studies. Um, so he's, he's another one that's worth checking out. Oh, also, Randy Vanderveen, Seymour Bucks out of Michigan. Very good channel. And MSD Deer Lab, they're uh, guys out of Mississippi State um, where they're, they're showing the research behind the stuff. So lots of good content out there and everybody's got an opinion and anybody can make a channel on youtube but those ones i just listed if you want to just 
be able to weed through the fluff. Um, those are those are ones that are worth starting with. Perfect. It's good information for someone that maybe can't have someone out, a land specialist. Um, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Biggest thing, I think, is safety because I've seen your chaps. And uh, before I met you, I probably wouldn't have thrown on chaps or done anything safety-wise. Uh, I'm yeah. going to rethink that come next spring. Right. No, yeah. big gouges in his. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I always I always point at those when I start cutting because in my 20s, I wasn't wearing chaps either. But I tell you what, that first time, you know, that you hit that, the first time you hit your chaps when you're wearing them, you're very thankful that you got them on because, and especially for me, when a lot of times I'm out cutting by myself, man, I don't want to be hitting my femoral artery when I'm two miles deep in the woods. You know, I'd be a gun, gun, or a goner if that happens. So, um, yeah. No, safety, helmet, chaps, and, and watch the videos. Another good book to read on safety, it's called To Fell a Tree. You can buy it on, you know, just Google it. Um, but I I would research all of that before I would bust out a chainsaw because there's definitely a right and wrong way to do it. Absolutely. So, uh, Sam, I'm sitting here, like, skimming over this plan that you wrote up for Logan. And I see in here that you talk about planting a handful of white spruce trees into each like of the bedding cuts. Yeah, um, I never like heard of that or seen that. You want to like talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, and this is one thing. Just as you, I mean, you, maybe you've noticed it when you're scouting, but it's definitely something I notice when I'm just kind of scouting in the woods, looking for deer sign and things like that. But when you're in a thick area. Um, if you find isolated conifers, often deer will bed up next to those conifers. It's something different, and it's also thermal cover. Um, they kind of just hone right in on those conifers, and, and spruce can tolerate you know, a little bit of, uh, or the white spruce will be able to tolerate a little bit of shade, because eventually that, um, those cut areas you know, are going to canopy over to some degree, and you'll have to reset them you know, probably at that 7 to 10 year mark. But they can... They can handle that dense cover, but basically you put them in there because it adds a thermal component and it's a, it's something different. It adds diversity into the bedding area and it's something that, you know, the deer can kind of hone in. A, I think the, I think the first time I shared this story, but I was on a property in Wisconsin and we were in just a really thick, it was a windfall area and we were cutting trails back through this, um, this area because it's set up really well for bedding. It was kind of a high point in the property. And it, but it was too thick. The deer couldn't penetrate it, so we knew we had to cut trails through it so that they could start using this as bedding again. Well, we actually came up on some isolated conifers. It was four. Um, I don't remember what they were. I think maybe Douglas fir or something like that. But there were four conifers right in the middle of this windfall. And I, I was telling the landowner, like, hey, this is the spot we really want to hold in on. And so he's looking at it. He's like, okay, you know, like, put the bed here. We put the bed here. And I was like, well, I, I think that would be the spot that deer would want to bed. So he goes over to the spot like I normally do when uh, we're setting up beds in a bedding area, and he starts kicking the sticks and debris away from the spot we want the deer to bed, and he actually kicked up a shed antler. So clearly there had been a buck bedding in that spot, you know, at one point. It was really cool to see. Um, he actually he's like, man, you must have planted that there or something, you know. And I was like, well, i got to get credibility somehow, you know. But... Uh, <laughs> Um, no, it was just, it was, it was very evident that a buck had bed there at one point and it just goes to show how those deer like to, to kind of hone in on those, um, 
those conifers. And like I said in the notes, I don't do more than even 50 trees to the acre. Um, it's just something where you go in, like the cut we did that day was probably a third of an acre at most. So you grab your 15 trees, 20 trees, and you know I hope that eventually maybe you expand that cut a little bit. But if it were just to stay at that, um, I would I would grab probably 15 spruce and go plant them in there just to uh, just to add a little diversity in them, that thermal component. Um, let's see here. What's a good one? Expectations after improving the land. So say someone has Sam out there. What's kind of the expected range to start seeing the benefits? That's that's really tough to say. It 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 depends on the layout of the property. You know, is it uh, is it a forty acre piece of fallow ground where we have to truly build it from the ground up? Is it a forty acre chunk of woods? Is it mixed egg? Um, so. I, it's going to come down to it depends and it also depends on the ambition of the landowner um you know there's sometimes where you can just see it you see the fire in the guy's eyes you know that he's going to just get at it and he's going to get a ton of stuff done and there's other guys where it's like okay you know they like the ideas they're going to implement some stuff they might not implement at all and it, it you kind of get what you put into it so um you know if it was a like on a property like yours if you guys got real ambitious with the chainsaws over the next three, four years, um, I would expect that you're going to see a progressive change over the next three to four years. Um, on our farm, I would say, and now keep in mind, I've put in, I'm sure, over a thousand hours worth of work over the last seven, eight years on the farm. I mean, that's thousands, I should say. So I put a ton of work into it, but I would say it was at probably the three, four year mark where it really seemed to start to take off. Like right now, I would say our farm is really, it's where I want it to be. Um, like there's always work to do. I was just out right before I talked to you guys, I was out in a bedding area doing some cleanup work and things like that. Um, so there's always work I can do out there and there's always, you know, more that can be done. But, um, yeah, it just it just depends what what your layout is, but if you're real ambitious and, and you're willing to just put the sweat equity into it that you need to put into it, you can definitely start to see results within a few years. Um, yeah. So, um, when you like go up, like show up to a property, like what like what's hardest for you? Like, forty acres of like solid woods or like a mix or like what do you prefer to do your like consult on or What's easiest for you? Um, I don't. I don't know if there's one that I would say hard. The hard ones are. It's literally the ones where you show up and it's all buckthorn. Like those ones, just they just stink because it's not like you can. You can't tell a guy to you know like in years we laid out six I don't know, seven different spots that you could do cutting and things like that and the edge feathering and all that stuff. You know if that if the bottom of that property would have been all buckthorn, like we can't, all you can really do is treat the buckthorn because if you open the canopy, you just get more buckthorn and that's just total garbage for deer. Um, so those, those are the hard ones. Anything else, like I like, it's nice to see different types of properties. Like it's fun going up in the big woods country because that's a little different than what we're dealing with. 
Um, I love working the mixed egg too because that's that's where our farm sets up with, you know, where there's a lot of different habitat features. You got some swamp, you got some fallow area, you got some timber, you got some egg. But then it's also fun going out like western Minnesota and you where you're dealing with 95% egg and you're working on the 5% that is an egg and somehow these little woodlots of just a few acres hold a ton of deer. Like that's fun too because then you have to get re- you can get real creative with what you want to do with it because you're like you're really trying to make those few acres that aren't egg pop. Um, so I don't know. I I enjoy it all. I just invasives is the only one that kind of stinks like when you go out and you see that and in minnesota it's at least in our area it's primarily buckthorn down in southeastern minnesota you start to deal with uh you know there's the bush honeysuckle gets a little can get out of hand i saw a new one um in western minnesota the russian olive i didn't realize we had that invasive here but that was one i discovered on a recent consult but can you explain what the russian olive is because now, after you mentioned that two weeks ago, out on the home farm, I'm going to call it a farm, but it's not really a farm. Um, I've noticed these purple flowers, like you said, and I have no clue what they are. Well, I don't like, I literally just, it was a new one to me as of like two weeks ago. So I looked it up on picture of this and it just, it called it invasive. Um, it's got like a silvery leaf. It really once you see it it really stands out because i on my drive back home that day i started to notice it in the ditches and things like that and actually it was probably within about i think i stopped seeing it about 70 miles from from home so that tells me with any invasive you know they spread so it's on its way so eventually maybe i'll see it on the farm pop up but um you know it would it's like any other invasive. Invasives are terrible because they replace native plants. Like they're not meant to be here. They tend to not have a whole ton of wildlife value. Um, so it's best to eradicate them because we want to make room for uh, for native plants. But yeah, I don't know a whole lot about it. I just know I, I can I can picture it now. I, I won't miss it now because it really, like I said, it got that kind of it's like a bluish silvery leaf. It really stands out. Okay, maybe that's not what I saw then. I'm going to look it up. I totally forgot the yeah, name from two weeks ago. Any, so uh, I didn't see any flowers on it. Okay. But that, was, that was a few weeks ago too. And maybe I didn't look close enough. But Rick, you have a question, don't you? All right, I guess not. He's being shy tonight, guys. <laughs> Guy acts like he works a full day. Um. Next question I have here is, what's your go-to food plot mix? Like your favorite food plot mix that you would you'd plant almost every year? So if I could pick a mix, it would be um, beans, soybeans planted at 36-inch spacing, overseeded with brassicas on August 1st, and then overseeded again with cereal rye around September 1st. Um, I love soybeans for late season. I don't think there's a better late season food plot than soybeans. If you got, the thing with soybeans though is you need acres of them, otherwise the deer will absolutely clean them up. We probably do, we do a lot of corn and a lot of soybeans and we probably have, gosh, I'm gonna guess wrong, probably 
uh, there's quite a bit, probably six or seven acres on our farm of soybeans this year. Um, and the corn kind of helps take the browse pressure off the soybeans. But I love the soybeans late. I love it when you still got green leaves on the soybeans that first week of bow season. I love brassicas pretty much through, I mean, all the season. And when I say brassicas, the, the brassicas I like, um, I like doing purple top turnips, tillage rape, or no, sorry, purple top turnips, tillage radish, a little bit of rape, and then a little bit heavier on kale. Um, I just noticed that deer absolutely smash kale, especially early. And then I love the rye because rye is a great filler. Um, I'll go into all our plots and I'll do 100 pounds to the acre on September 1st just to fill in those those bare spots. Rye is exceedingly cold hardy. Um, it can germinate down to 35 degrees. It handles the frost well, so it stays green after the first couple of frosts. And then it's the first thing to sprout back in the spring. So when the deer are coming out of winter and they are absolutely starving and they they need to, um, you know, they just need that nutrition, it's nice because that rye is the first thing to green up in the spring. So, yeah, that would be my ultimate plot, having having all three of those right in the same food plot. All right. Uh, you mentioned big ag fields. Um, you know, like on the property that we went and viewed up north, uh, you marked on the plan with green, uh, planting the trails with clover and hick- or chicory. Is that correct? Um, how would you do that if you're hunting more egg fields? I mean, are you, say you have a trail system through their land, but you have a 10-acre cornfield, 20-acre bean field, etc. Are you doing those trails the same way you would on like a small 3-acre food plot? No, so in big egg, I actually do it a little bit differently. Um, I tend to use the, the clover trails, and and um, even sometimes, I'll, a couple of times, I'll, I've recommended seeding the bedding areas with some clover. Um, but I tend to do that more in big woods country where I'm trying to stick as much food into that property as possible because I want that property just to set out, stand out, and be different. Um so I, I pile the, the food into a property like yours where there's just not a whole lot of other food in the area in, as regards to, or in regards to like egg and things like that. But in big, big egg country, I, I set the bedding up more where the bedding is bedding. Um, and then I'll have trails leading to the food, but my trails are more, um, my trails are more just braid bare dirt and those are my travel corridors i'll make them like two to three feet wide and um i just have the bare dirt trails leading right into the food um because i want to pull them out on the food uh you know and guide that movement right to the food but the the clover just it's not really i haven't found it to be necessary i i've used it a little bit on ours in like in the bedding areas and a couple travel travel corridors and I just haven't seen, yeah, I just haven't seen a, a huge difference that where I feel like I need it. But in a situation like yours, I want your property to look way different than the properties around it, where everything's just you know a kind of monotonous timber setting. So it's an it's an easy place to stack food when we put it on the trails and kind of guide that movement into the into the main food plots. 
Yeah, no, that's good to know. I mean, around here is at home, central Minnesota's like a completely different ball game compared to two hours north. So we're hunting. I wouldn't say big ag fields, but we're, you know, medium sized for sure. Um, I was driving the property that I hunt around home tonight, uh, checking the trail camera, and I was just thinking, I was like, that would be a lot of clover to plant because we have trails throughout the whole thing. So yeah. it's good insight, but. Yeah, I want, in a situation like that, I don't, I mean, I don't think it's necessary. I still, like, on ours, I'll see down, like, shooting lanes and things like that, and it's just a way more to get the deer to stop when they're cutting through the lane. Um, but as far as trails and things like that, I just, I try to stick basically to that bear dirt. It seems like if you give that deer that bear dirt trail, um, they tend to, they tend to use it. So. Sam, what's your, uh, your favorite setup when it comes to hunting are you a by a bedding are you food um you know what what do you kind of look at um so early season i i just had by far the best success early within the first three or four weeks of bow season because i feel like that's when you can still catch a buck on his bed to food pattern so early pinching in as close as possible to the bedding where I still have a dynamite access where I'm not going to bump that deer is like I said I think in the first podcast so I've, I've shot a buck with my bow for the last five years and three of the times I know I was within 50 yards of where he was bedding the other time he was probably about 100 yards away um, but I, I was able to pinch right into that bedding and on each of those bucks, they got up probably an hour and a half before the end of legal shooting, but they all just milled around. And you could tell they probably weren't going to pop out onto that food plot until right at the last possible second. Um, but they were milling around right where I was, so I was able to shoot them all well before uh, the end of legal shooting. But you could it's just interesting watching the bucks' behavior. They just had... They clearly had no interest in stepping outside of the cover, um, but because of you know that I was in a spot where it was a transition between the bedding to the food, I was able to get an arrow in um, those deer. And the one I should say, the one that was bedded like hundred yards away, I shot him on a food plot. So um, he's he was the exception, but the other three were definitely in their um, transition areas. Uh, otherwise, if it was during the rut, uh, downwind side of doe bedding is definitely my preferred spot as long as i got a really clean access but if i can get on that downwind side and watch those bucks cruising the downwind side of the the bedding that just is a really really nice interception point um one of the questions i kind of had is i think we could all kind of chip in and give our two cents but a mature buck what is that in your eyes well, um, that's been a, a evolving uh, thought for me, I guess. You know, right away when I started hunting, a mature buck was out to the ears, basically a two-and-a-half-year-old buck. If he was touching his ears out to the ears, that was a mature buck. Well, then in my 20s, I kind of, and, and my, all the way through my mid-30s, a mature buck to me was a three-and-a-half-year-old deer, and I, I said this the first time, 
I don't care where where you are in Minnesota, three and a half year old deer is a heck of a nice deer and ninety five percent of the hunters probably aren't passing that deer. So um I get still to this day get really, really excited about a three and a half year old deer. Um because it can be a they can be a hundred you know, three and a half year old deer can be a hundred and forty some inch deer. Um so still in my mind a three and a half year old deer is a heck of a nice deer. Well, now the last couple of years I've I've kind of transitioned into not well i shouldn't say the last couple of years last year two years ago i was going to transition into not shooting a three-year-old deer but there's a story behind that my son was with and my yeah my thoughts changed to kind of mid-hunt on that one but um last year i i said okay enough enough with three and a half year old deers um three and a half year old deer i'm going to switch to um basically if he's four and a half or better um, that's what I'm going to shoot because finally we've got to the, the farm to the point where consistently every year there's at least one four and a half year old deer to chase. So from here on out, um, I have no plans of shooting a three year old again. I'd like to hold out for uh, for a four year old or better every year. I don't know if I'll ever graduate off four year olds where I'll shoot a five year old deer um, or just hold out for five year old deer. I guess we'll see what um, where the farm progresses. But for right now, if I know he's a four year old deer and I know I'd keep him out. Um, I'd shoot him, or if I we have one that's like super old on the farm, he's like seven or eight, and maybe not. I don't know. He's super old. He's probably a hundred inch six pointer, but I obviously wouldn't keep him out. But I think it'd be really stinking cool to shoot just a, a rugged old six pointer. So if he came by, I would definitely shoot him too. But um, I think it just it depends on on the situation. You got to kind of you know be realistic about what you're you know what your property is and what the deer in the area are and you can't hunt a deer that's not there so if you're in an area where you know it kind of caps out at that two three-year-old deer you know i i always tell guys i'd if anything i'd go after the biggest deer that you have on the property you know whether that's a two-year-old or five-year-old um you want to be out there and you want to have a reason to be out there so if some guy was like man the biggest gear i had was a two-year-old on camera and i got rounded down hunters all around me and so i'm going for that gear i'd say hey that's awesome go for it man um so it really comes down to the the hunter and the situation that they're in it definitely goes by area too for sure yeah um riley kyle you have any thoughts on that well, that's funny that we brought this up. So I was just telling Riley this. We were talking this before we started this. Um, well, you I, just you just got yours back. Yeah, I got my buck back from last year. But I moved one of my euros from the house out to the garage here. It was the first like me growing up. We didn't have deer at all. Like it was rare to shoot like a, you know even a small buck. But my first to me like big buck. It's a two and a half year old eight pointer and like it came out to ears and curled and I was ecstatic at that time. Like I thought I killed a big deer, you know? But since then I moved down and gotten better property, better areas mm-hmm. and, you know, and I've graduated up to better class size deer cause just cause I'm able to hunt them. But back then when I shot that deer, that was in my eyes, just an absolute trophy. Rick? I don't know. I really, it's hard. Like Logan said, it definitely depends on your area. And I feel like we have an area that we don't see a lot of really mature deer. I don't think they make it that long. Um, a four-year-old deer for around here is a old deer. Three and a half year old. It's, yeah, it's they're not that common. Right. So I don't know what stage I'm at yet in my life. Um, 
I definitely would like to shoot the most mature deer as possible. Um, kind of, for some reason, more looking at inches than mature, but... He's got a big, pretty rack all through him. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm to the point where I want to shoot a four-year-old and like 140 plus inches would be the ideal goal. Obviously, you get those four-year-olds that are maybe not genetically there, but... Riley's got one of them. Edward. Edward. <laughs> Call him Edward. Edward Scissorhand. He has <laughs> shit going on that. Yeah, it's. Sam, do you name any of your deer? Oh yeah, yeah, we name our deer. Yeah, that's I mean, always. I, I don't say that we name every deer we have on camera, but like the buck I shot last year, we called Chevy. You know, it was because he was heavy, so heavy Chevy. But um, yeah, there we come up with dumb names for all our deer. <laughs> Kyle, Kyle came up with a name for his deer because he was outside and he got a trail camera picture and he was looking at a rock, so he named him Rock. <laughs> you got one of Rock sheds sitting right on the that's, table. Uh, that's like the Anchorman scene, you know. I love lamp. That's basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he like that guy. I I try to name deer, but it, it, once you go into like the new year, it's sometimes hard to identify those same deer, mm. unless they have like you know very noticeable characteristics yeah i have one that i've had for three years now i call him buster and he has he doesn't get any bigger every year but he has such a like a unique like curl to his rack that he's the same deer every year if he lived through the winter he's got to be coming on five and a half he'll be five this year i would i think yeah and a five-year-old deer i mean that's like you said it's hard to come by a deer that gets that old in minnesota so or at least most parts of minnesota so that's that's an awesome gear to chase right there. Um, so back to um, I guess different topic, but like, how do you decipher like buck bedding to like doe bedding, or do you see like a difference, or how do you hunt it that way, or how do you set it up that way, maybe even? So. I know there's tons of videos out there that you know say like this is buck bedding, this is doe bedding, and I talk about it too. I'm like sometimes when I'm setting up a bedding area, I'm like I assume this is going to probably be a doe bedding spot, or sometimes I'm like my hope is that this will be a buck bedding spot, but we can't ever tell a buck to bed here and he's going to absolutely bed there. We can definitely do that with does. Um, so what I think of as doe bedding is basically the closest cover possible to food because does will bed as close as they can to that food source. They don't want to travel far. They're always the first year in the plot. So when we do a, a cut closer to food or we set up bedding with whatever we're doing closer to food, um, I assume that's going to that's gonna be doe bedding. And then um, if we can have those cuts that are further behind or those bedding spots that we're setting up further behind that doe bedding cut the theory is we can pull the does closer to the food we leave the space in the back for the bucks now does that work a hundred percent of the time absolutely not like i think of um you know the buck i shot last year he was bedded literally like 30 yards off a food source you know so that in theory you would think okay there's no way he's ever going to be bedded there but he had a dynamite spot it was a total like hole in the wall spot completely overlooked everybody overlooked this spot but he's been at 30 yards off a food source and like three little willows so i don't know mature bucks 
I, I think that theory works well for like your your two and your three year old bucks, but mature bucks are just a different animal, and I feel like they they get mature for a reason. They find the spots that nobody you know thinks about, and those overlooked holes, and they just find a way to survive. Um, you know, Dan Infault, I think he's talked about a buck before where literally this buck was sitting watching everybody in a you know public land parking spot and probably watched everybody for years and he was within like 70 yards of the parking spot. And I think Dan Infault ended up killing that deer. Um, but that's that's what they do. They just kind of find their nook. They find their spot that's going to be stayed and, um, and they're able to survive. But I do think there's certainly areas that they like to bet on um yeah like i said i think points where they can they have a nice overlook i think those set up well as buck bedding locations um islands and swamps for sure especially small islands in a swamp uh, those spots really stand out for potential buck bedding um yeah any spot where they kind of have like jim brocker calls it a, a room with a view you know where they have a nice backstop to bed up against nice cover behind them where they can have a good overlook where they can scent check everything behind them and then be able to look over a wide area to see what's coming like those are spots that set up as buck bedding and it's easy to find those spots when you're scouting because if you ever get in a spot where you see those kind of features and then you notice tons of rubs and things like that like you know that was a buck bedding location you know if the if the sign's there the potential bedding stuff is there you know that's where that's where the buck wants to be so but i don't think i don't think a buck necessarily beds in the same bed over and over and over and i think they have several beds msu deer lab is doing a study on this right now and i can't wait to see what the results are at least i think they're going to study on this i thought i saw them post something about it but i can't wait to see like what the results are because i think they have lots of different bedding locations depending on time of year depending on wind weather all that kind of stuff um i i do think they'll use a bed you know more than once but i think they have a lot of different spots that they bed um for a variety of different reasons do you, like, in your experience, do you feel like a mature buck, like, prefers the bed alone away from other deer? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I, um, I mean, they'll, obviously during the summer, when they're, when they're in their backyard groups, they'll, once the velvet comes off, um, and they kind of hit that transition to fall habitat, that happens mid to late September, I definitely think they're, uh, they're betting by them themselves especially the older they get i mean jeff sturgis had a great analogy for this and he's talking about his dad and he said how the older he gets the more he kind of you know just sit in his chair and have that nice quiet time to himself um i think that's a great analogy for an older old ruddy buck like i think the older they get um the more they they kind of crave that solitude and definitely the more their core area shrinks and that's been proven i think by by gps collar studies but the i mean their core area can shrink i think down to just an area of like 40 acres um they don't they don't tend to want to move too far off their off their core uh, the older they get i have another great question i heard this on another podcast and i don't think I don't know if we can say the podcast name or not, so I'm going to keep it out of it. If you guys could choose, this is a question for everyone. One 
thousand acre chunk of property or 10 100 acre properties spread out what would you choose <laughs> see this is a hard question <clears throat> sam sam you go first uh this is now i get it like i i get the appeal of the 10 one acre 100 acre properties now if i was a guy that was strictly just a hunter and i wasn't into the habitat management i would 100 percent choose that option because then you're hunting 10 different groups of bucks right like that's pretty awesome you're always going to probably have some real slammers to chase every single year but i get as much enjoyment out of the habitat management as i do the hunt and to be able to have a thousand acres to set up exactly how i want it where i feel like i feel like it, once you get to a thousand acres you're getting to the point where you can actually hold some gear for pretty much the majority of the time that they're um you know alive that they're they're not gonna wander too far off your property um I, as a habitat guy, I would just completely geek out on that situation with what I could do with it. Not that I can't manage 10 100-acre properties for better habitat. Of course I could, but I'd want to see what, you know, how much I could hold deer on a 1,000 thousand acres. I just would get a real kick out of that. Let's go in a circle. Riley? I would definitely choose the 100 acres, the 10 100 acres. Why? Just because you have so many other opportunities to shoot different deer, right? You have a thousand acres, roughly how many miles is a thousand acres? I don't know. You're asking the wrong guys here. We're not very good at math. Well, a deer can travel how far, so you're, you know, you have more opportunities, in my opinion, with ten hundred acre pieces than you do a thousand acre piece to shoot different deer and have different deer well i know for me i have permission on like four different properties and my head already spins enough deciding which one to hunt so i would go with the big property thousand acres see i'm on the same page a thousand acres more so because you have more land which means well it's the same amount of land well it is it's the same amount of land but i'm saying a bigger chunk to hold your own deer to grow in quotation marks grow your own deer and to pass on, I feel like, more. I mean, say this 1,000 acres in Minnesota, you get one buck tag. Right. What is that other nine properties really going to, you know? Year, year. That's where you I'm at with it. Year, year, yeah. That's where I'm at with it. And I get the whole habitat thing as well. Like, I mean, it'd be cool to be able to own your own property and build it up to, like, what you want. Um, and... St- have your own deer farm, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So, Sam, uh, do you have any bucks, like, named or target bucks this year that you got your eye on or you're looking for? So, so the last couple, well, few years, we, I should say the last two years, we had two bucks on the farm that were just absolute toes like the biggest good year we've ever had on the farm and the one was the one i got with the bow last year and the other one um we believe got hit by a car we got his last rack he had shed it and um but then that winter we found a big dead shed buck right by the road and he never showed back up last year so um 
so yeah so the, they were the if they were by and we have his sheds and we haven't taped him out but i would be shocked if they aren't 170 inches like he was a he was a stud deer so anyway we had the two biggest year we've ever had and they're both dead now and thankfully you know i got the one that was incredible but we also lost some deer around us um that we had on camera you got taken out by the neighbors just some really nice up-and-comers which kudos to them like i always get excited for the neighbors when they shoot deer everybody's putting the work in and putting the time in so um they're definitely not our deer um that's part of hunting you're going to lose some deer and that's totally awesome i i celebrate with them when they when they get bucks too um but with that being said we yeah we kind of took a hit last year but i do think we had i was just looking at it the other day i think we got four or five bucks that were three years old that i got pictures of after hunting season last year like in january now some of those are we we get a lot of deer that yard on us so we i think one or two of them kind of showed up late or i knew they weren't really living on us during the heart of the hunt season they were kind of you know one or two parcels over so some of those deer won't trickle in till the late season that'd be the only chance i'd have at them but uh we should have one or two four-year-olds at least to hunt that i think were more resident bucks um and plus we got that big dumpy old six-pointer and he's still around of course uh, he's a buck with nine lives. So if I see him, I'm definitely going to try to shoot him, too. But there should be a buck to chase next year, but it's not like what we've had the last couple of years. But you never know, you know, that jump from three to four, the deer can just absolutely blow up. Like the buck I shot, when he jumped from three to four, he probably jumped from 135 to 160 at four, year old, at four years old. So um, they can make that crazy jump. So hopefully we still got some good genetics in the area. And, one of those deer will make a, a big leap. So you talked about having these pictures of these three-and-a-half-year-olds in January. When you go shed hunting, are you walking their bedding? Are you not worried about blowing those bucks out of there? I mean, typically you would think you blow them out in the spring time. Let's call it March, late March. Yeah. They're, they'll make their way back, or do you think a completely different view? No, I got, um, I definitely don't blow them out of their bedding in the winter just because they're, you know, it's the, the highest stress time of the year for them. That late winter, early spring part is when deer start dying, especially when we have a winter like last winter. So I'm not walking in their bedding, but I know exactly where they're bedding. You know, in the winter, they're looking for thermal cover. So they're bedding in the conifers, they're bedding in the low-lying swamps. Um, they're, they're bedding in those areas where they can get out of the winter elements. So when we have our you know, main hinge cuts and bedding cuts set up and things like that. Those act as more browse areas in the winter. So the deer are definitely in them, but they're not bedding in them. And so I'm in those areas. Like I'm in those areas working. I'm dropping trees, things like that in the winter. So I'll look for sheds when I'm in those spots and those transition areas. I'll go walk in the food plots um, because I know I'm not not where the deer are bedding. Um, But yeah, I definitely don't walk into their their winter bedding spots um, because I don't I don't want to add any more stress to the deer so that's a good input I would have never typically thought of that not that I shed hunt a lot but if I do I probably won't know like what to look for in the winter for their bedding um, but definitely going to keep that in mind now yeah that's I mean that's one thing 
I think a lot of people just don't think about that they bet. I mean, the summer they're betting in a different spot than they do in the fall, and in the fall they're betting in a different spot than they do in the winter, and the winter they're betting in a different spot than they do in the spring. I mean, they they have their locations that they like to bet in, in during any given time of the year. So, um, but you can definitely use that to your advantage, you know. So right now, today I was in the one betting cut that's just crazy thick. Um, it's a three-year-old betting cut. It's the one I did a video on where I, I threw all the bucks using it during the rut, and it just blew up, and it's super duper thick. I mean, I'll work in that cut till mid-August, and I'm, I'm not worried one bit about it because I know that's not where the bucks want to be this time of year. Like, the does will bet in those spots in the summer, but I'm not worried about bumping a doe. But the bucks aren't going to be wanting to bet in a spot like that, so um, I can I can use that to my advantage and I can go in and work in areas and not worry about, you know, bumping or stressing deer. Alrighty. Good input for everyone listening, us. I th- we probably made that mistake once. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, one last question here. The new crossbow, uh, what do you want to call it, rules, regulations in Minnesota. What are your thoughts? Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm just fairly indifferent on it. Um, I, like I mentioned the first go around, you know, I'm, I like the fact that we should theoretically have less wounded deer, um, just because, you know, you're going to have more uh, kids using it or people that just can't pull a high amount of poundage. I never liked the idea of, I don't know what we say, I don't think we knew the first time around, but the minimum poundage in Minnesota is. 30, 35, 40 pounds. Like, I just don't love the idea of shooting an arrow at a deer where we don't even have a realistic um, expectation of a pass-through when it's that low a poundage. So I like the fact that that crossbow bolt is going to be able to rip through the deer and we should have more clean, ethical kills. Um, I'm okay with more people being able to be in the woods hunting just because I know people say that public land is busy, and I get it. It, it can be busy, but as a whole, license sales, I think, are still going down more and more each year, so getting more people in the woods, um, I'm okay with that. Um, I will admit if I see a, you know, a healthy, very capable 30-year-old out in the woods shooting, you know, ripping bucks at 60 yards with a crossbow, there's going to be a little part of me that's going to be like, oh, man, but... You know, that is what it is. If it's legal and he does it ethically, you know, it, I guess good for him. It's just that that part of me that likes the challenge of the compound bow will probably just cringe a little bit when I see that situation play out. But, yeah, I don't know. Mostly probably just indifferent. Riley. He's over here shaking his head on some of the talking points. <laughs> no. He's quiet, please. I, I think it can be good and bad. Um, definitely could be good for the, you know, younger generation coming up trying to get into it to even see if they like hunting. Um, you know, like you said, a little more ethical than, you know, low poundage bows. And, you know, some people just don't have the, you know, it takes a lot of patience and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of shooting and stuff to shoot a compound, right? So I, I guess you can look at that point that, you know, somebody can pick up a crossbow and, you know, it still has to shoot a little bit, but can go out here and there. Um, you know, do I think it should be in the same season as, you know, considered archery? No, 
I, I think there should be a certain time of year that you know people can use it. Um, I don't think it should be the whole season like you get with a bow. Uh, I don't know. It's a, a touchy subject, I, I think, for a lot of people, but I don't know. We'll see what ends up happening here, I guess, with what happens. I, I see it more in a positive view. There's definitely those negative thoughts of some bozo is going to go out there and he's going to start shooting at 80 to 100 yards because now they have the capability to. Right. And it's not like a really ethical shot, you know, um, compared to like if you had a rifle with you. But um, I think it's going to bring more people into the sport, which we need because hunting is a dying breed all over the country. Even like like when my daughter's old enough, like I'd be off, like when she's however old, like take her out with a crossbow, you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. Old like old enough to shoot a regular compound. Like when... When is it? You can legally hunt with a bow when you're... Is it 10? Or is it older? Or is it just whenever you can pull back 30 pounds, I'm assuming? But they probably, at age 10, they probably can't pull back 30 pounds at that point. So a crossbow is a good way to introduce them into archery and build up their confidence to move up to the compound bow. Right. Is how yeah, I see yeah, it. See if they, you know, enjoy yeah. Like yeah. I think it's a... It's better than the rifle yeah like for kids you know it gets the deer closer you're not just oh there's a deer 300 yards away dad sighted in my gun i can shoot shoot at four or five times yeah you know so i think it's a better way to teach ethics when it comes to hunting too um but i definitely think it'll teach patience too a little bit more because you know, obviously with a gun, you can shoot a lot further distance. Um, with a crossbow, you can shoot more of the comp, you know, more distance than a compound. But it definitely is going to teach those people, you know, more patience as well. Maybe it helps with deer management. Now, people with a rifle, if they pick up crossbow hunting, instead of you know the typical two weeks, three weeks in northern parts, you you have a full three months to you know kill a deer. Now, that's a good point, I guess. So. Well, is that all? Sam, do you have any questions for us? Anything you want to leave? Maybe tell the podcast listeners where they can find your social media pages um, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you can find me on uh, Facebook under Purposeful Habitat Management, uh, YouTube, and Instagram. Um, I don't use Instagram a ton, mostly just to pull it post like short form content but youtube and facebook under that same purpose-filled habitat management um that's where i do do most of my posting and if any if you ever have questions or anything like that always don't hesitate to ask um i I love interacting with guys regarding this stuff and even if you want to have me out to do work or for a consult that that doesn't matter i still uh I still enjoy talking about this and helping guys out the best I can and not saying that every time I'm going to have the answer, but um, if I don't have the answer, there's a, there's a good chance I'll at least know where you can get the answer. So, um, so yeah, but uh, yeah, that, that would be the, uh, those, those are the best places to reach me. Well, I think I can say with confidence that you'll be hearing probably from all three of us for sure. For sure. Me regarding my property up North, but I think the other two might, have some questions, but um, yeah, anytime, anytime, text, call, message, don't matter. Awesome. I 
we appreciate you doing this again with us. I know the first time we had some audio hiccups, um, but appreciate it. Good luck this season. Absolutely. Good luck. Hopefully you can show us some pictures of some deer as well, of what you guys put down, and we'll keep in touch throughout the season. Um, but That'd be awesome. I'm hoping we can all have a bunch of pictures to exchange. Absolutely. In the time being, we're going to keep chasing that tail.